Hey, and welcome to the Android Central Podcast for Friday, March 15th, 2019. My name is Daniel Bader, Managing Editor, Android Central. Welcome back to the show. Joining me this week, returning after many weeks off. Jerry, I realize we haven't had you on for way too long. Jerry Hildenbrand, welcome back. Hey, hey, it's nice to be back. And we're having you on because, well, because we love you and everybody wants you. And, and whenever you're not on the show, people are like, we don't listen to you unless Jerry's on. So they're kind of holding my feet to the fire here. <laughs> and, you know, that's one reason we want you, but also because there's a lot of Android stuff to talk about this week. And I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on it. Um, and steering us in the device direction, Andrew Martinick, welcome back. How are you doing? Doing all right, and I really have no idea when both Jerry and I were on together. It's I don't, yeah, it was we're a talking while. Month, months, right? I think it's so. Been a while. It's been Jeez. far too long. We actually Correct. tried to do. Uh, we wanted to do a like a live podcast when we were all together in person at uh, Monocon, but that just didn't happen. So, mm-hmm. and then last week we took a week off because everybody was just burnt out and uh, exhausted, and we couldn't get it together. So we have two weeks worth of stuff to catch up on. Um, and I'm kind of glad we waited because last week we were still all in on Galaxy S10 and we were still kind of coming off the review and it was, um, you know, I think our thoughts weren't fully padded out yet. Now we have both Galaxy S10 and 10 Plus, plus the S10e, we have the Galaxy Buds, we have kind of our thoughts on whether the S10 series is better than anything else out there. Um, and then yesterday or two days ago now on Wednesday, my, um, Google dropped Android Q on us. And um, in the second half of the show, we will talk about the first beta for the new upcoming version of Android that will inevitably debut uh, with the Pixel 4, but we'll get the fullish version earlier than that. We'll get six betas this time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think are the most exciting updates to this because there there doesn't seem to be one big one big feature yet so we'll dig into that a bit later and then if we do have time we'll talk about the moto g7 i know i know it's a 300 dollars phone it's not that exciting except yes it is i i, I really think it's exciting and and i, and I want to tell you why so um we'll we'll see if we have time for that later but let's jump right in andrew uh, let's talk about the Galaxy S10 and S10e and mm-hmm. how they match up with one another because you have reviewed both of them. You've you've kind of uh, seen their ups and downs over the last couple of weeks. And I want to know, which phone do you have in your pocket right now? It has still been the 10e, actually. And Part of that is just because it was the most recent one I used, but I I think it's really telling that when I was finished with the review, I didn't just take out my SIM card, put it back in the 10 plus and, you know, go back to it because I've been loving the size of this thing more than I thought that I would, especially considering before using the 10, uh, the Galaxy S10 plus, I was using the Pixel 3 XL, the Note 9, the S9 plus, you know, the OnePlus 6T, all of these really kind of you know larger end six inch plus phones and then you go back to the s10e and it has a flat screen and it's kind of so quaint at 5.8 inches well i mean the thing is that the 5.8 inch screen size doesn't really tell you the whole 
the whole story because mm-hmm. this phone is actually much more compact than it than it would let on from that screen size, right? This is yeah, it's the actually same size a lot as smaller. like a Galaxy S7. Yeah, I was going to say, I've been comparing it to the Galaxy S8 for a couple of uh, different articles, and it's considerably shorter than the Galaxy S8, which I think if you hand somebody an S8, S9, uh, you know, the smaller version is not the plus, you'd be very surprised. You know, you you don't think about how small those phones were, and this is considerably shorter, right? Closer to the S7. And I guess the question here is, with a lot of the reviews including ours to some extent, positioning it as the, quote, budget Galaxy S10, uh, it's it's really important to mention that this is actually more expensive than the Galaxy S9 debuted at, and that there is nothing budget yes, about this 30, phone. $30 more. So when you put it like that, and you have a 250 or $150 delta between the 10 e and the S10, and a 250 between the S10e and the 10 Plus, which one do you recommend most people buy? Uh, I, I think that you're going to either get the E or you're going to get the plus. I don't really see the value proposition of the regular 10. Um, you either, you know, you either want to go all the way because you want the huge screen and the, the insane battery life, the 10 plus, because the battery life really is insane, uh, uh out of the larger phone. And like you take those trade-offs, it's okay. And because that's only a hundred dollars more than the regular 10, but you get that considerable battery life jump, you might as well just go all the way. But if you're price conscious, it's like, why not just drop all the way down? It's, you know, unless, I don't know, it's just kind of this weird uh, middle ground that doesn't make a lot of sense. I think that it would be a little bit easier, I guess, if there was like something that differentiated the 10 feature wise, but because they, you know, they only made that differentiation between the 10e and the regular 10 in terms of going from flat to curved screen, and you know, the design is a little bit different, and it, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, the you don't get the second front camera. There's just the difference in battery life, and this in the screen size is, you know, a, it's not effectively the same, but it's pretty darn close. The 10 just kind of gets muscled out in the middle. Jerry, I want to bring you in here because. There's there's something interesting to me about um, where Samsung ostensibly saved money by cutting a few corners on the S10e without undermining the entire project. And I, I'd like to hear what you think are the good and bad areas that they cut um, in order to to reach that seven hundred fifty dollar price. Uh, the good uh, they or using a more traditional fingerprint sensor that saves money and gives you the experience you're used to. And I'm not knocking the in-screen ultrasonic sensor. I haven't used it, and I love the idea behind it, though I hear it's not quite as fast. So, you know, maybe sticking with the old one was a smart move. Uh, The biggest thing I don't like is the 1080p resolution, you would think that they could have bumped that up a little bit. This is Samsung. Their name is synonymous with display technology. I'm not real concerned about losing the, uh, what is it? They took away the telephoto and it still Mm -hmm. has that ultra wide. That was probably a smart idea. I don't see any way that really saves any money. Uh, They're still buying a a sensor or, or manufacturing their own. You know, Sam, they're Samsung. They can do both. Uh, I 
I hate to say it, but I think they they saw that everybody bought or everybody praises the iPhone XR, and you know they're doing it be, for the same reason they they know this phone will sell just because it's a a little bit cheaper. It's not you know like we said it's it's not cheap, but it's it's mm-hmm. slightly cheaper. It's a more manageable size for a lot of people, and maybe this is out in the weeds. The curved screen, I hated it. I love the flat screen. So yeah. I really think uh, maybe this is less of a you know way to make a you know little bit more money on on the phone itself. I'm I, I I'm really going to think their margin isn't any better. On this small phone, they're just making sure they've covered the basis for everyone. I think that's the big point at the end. There is you're you're covering this additional point when they moved when they moved everything else up so considerably from the S nine to S ten. You had to offer something back down at roughly the same starting price as you had before, or something else was going to go in there. So Samsung realized, you know, if somebody's going to slot right in underneath us, it might as well just be us. And yeah. I agree that the the parts that they cut were very strategic and they seemed like they were, you know, overall good uh, little places to cut. And I, I agree that the margins probably, you know, they're definitely not better than the S10 plus, but I don't think they're going to be considerably worse. Uh, well, I'm I, I imagine that it's it's harder to build uh, S10e than it is an S10 plus, at least during the initial engineering and design, because. They've packed almost everything in, you know, that's in the plus into this much smaller phone. Yeah, I have a feeling that that the losing the third rear camera is almost, uh, you know, down to packaging and running out of room Uh, inside the phone more than anything else. It could be. You know, I I think it's worth noting, and I, I do believe I've written about this, too. They still found a way to put a headphone jack in there. And that's something we were been told is impossible. Well, it's not impossible for Samsung. So, Daniel, do you have an you have an S10e as well, right? Uh, yeah. So I've I've um an S10 and an S10e, and I've been using the S10 the last week or so. So I seem to be the one person in my group that is enjoying using the 10, mainly because I just found the 10 Plus to be a little big, but I am struggling to find reasons not to go back to the 10e because i just found it a much more enjoyable experience this the ultrasonic fingerprint sensor is so finicky and it's not even that the failure rate is low like i figured out where to put my thumb every time even when i don't even when i'm not looking at the screen it's now um you know sort of the muscle memory but the problem is that you have no haptic feedback at all you actually have no indication that you've hit the right spot and the screen once you activate this the fingerprint sensor takes about a second to turn on and acknowledge that you've accurately put your fingerprint in so you have this second of waiting to know whether you've messed up and have to start again and i mm-hmm. find that to be super weird like that is a really uncommon thing you, it's you know, the time between attempts is the only it's so weird that that's the thing like the recognition when it recognizes is good it's that Mm -hmm. time to fail and the time between attempts that you really notice it's 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 like this very amateur 
user experience that you wouldn't expect from Samsung in 2019. And it, I'm not going to say it undermines the entire experience because it obviously doesn't. Once you're in the phone, it's pra- like performance-wise, it's practically perfect. But the issue is the wake to... So there's the option to turn on the screen automatically to unlock your phone using the face unlock. And the face unlock as well is really fast, really reliable because it's not that secure. But even then... The wake to unlock, the the wake to turn on does not uh, happen very quickly. So every single time I want to unlock my phone, there's this hesitance of, am I going to do it right? Is there going to be some interruption, some discord? Whereas with the 10e, I don't have to think about it. I take it out of my pocket. My thumb's right on the fingerprint sensor. And I know that it sounds like a, a very small thing, but when you unlock your phone hundreds of times a day as i you and everybody listening to this podcast likely does it adds up and the 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 cognitive dissonance is it's 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 additive it really does bog down the feeling of using this phone i have to say and that's even while recognizing that the s10e's fingerprint sensor could probably move down half an inch to really yeah, be to really be in like the perfect spot although i i mean I also recognize that it's pretty sensitive and so it's really easy to just, you know, get just a tiny bit of your finger on there and it unlocks. But even with that, even recognizing that it's not in kind of that perfect, you know, where your thumb lands every time, kind of like a lot of the Sony phones when they had them on the side uh, or whichever the Moto Z3 Play had it over there, you know, stuff like that. Even with that extra movement, knowing that when you do that extra little shift up with uh, with either your thumb or your left index finger, that it just unlocks immediately and there's not going to be those multiple attempts is, you know, it's the mental hurdle you don't have to go through. Now, is there an actual difference in the, the delay time between the 10E and the capacitive fingerprint and the 10 or 10 plus with the ultrasonic? Or is it just you're not getting any feedback and it just distresses you waiting to know if you did it right? Oh, it's 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 definitely longer. Like 100% hmm. that the S10 and S10 Plus take longer to acknowledge. Like I wonder if you if don't actively a- press the power button or if you don't double tap to turn on the screen first and then press the pa- uh, put your finger on the on the fingerprint sensor there's at least a second difference between that and putting your finger on the capacitive sensor on the S10e. Like it's, it's without question, not a great experience. My thing is, is this something Samsung can address in software updates? Um, The one thing that I would love to see is something that I, I like on the iPhone 10 where you just tap the screen once to turn it on as opposed to tapping it twice and I know that isn't a big deal, but if you just tap the screen once, right now it turns on the um, it turns on the always on display. But the always on display does not always show the fingerprint sensor, which is so weird because <laughs> the it was supposed to be that it, way. The, it's, the, it the, makes the, no the sense. way that the settings are. The settings has a, a toggle you could say that like always show fingerprint sensor. And you turn it on and it doesn't do anything. Yeah, so that that's what kind of leads me to believe they will update this or at least make it uh, make it better. OnePlus did it with the 6T. They released, I don't know, half a dozen updates since I got the phone. And 
it's not it hasn't fixed the optical sensor by any means but it's certainly a better experience now you get a lot less you a lot fewer false positives and the sensor is the location is lit up on the always on display sure yeah exactly so, so. i'd like that to happen here I, i'm willing to bet that out of the box it's this is how long it's going to take to be relatively secure and that's an engineer's idea of relatively secure and now maybe we're going to realize that users might like it to be a little bit faster and maybe check a few less points in the algorithm and it's going to be a little bit less secure but a whole lot faster i'm i really think that can be done and i know we're we're harping on it a lot the the fingerprint sensor of course but one of the other problems that i've found is that it doesn't like to accept a partial print in the same way that a capacitive sensor does. It, it seems to have way less of a tolerance to put a small portion of your thumb on top of the sensor. You really have to nail it like 100% of the way. Whereas, you know, on the S10e or on the Pixel 3 or whatever, you can, you know, just kind of stick your finger over there. And if it comes in contact with the sensor, it's going to get it. So I, I guess there's two things here. The first thing is, this is not going to be a flash in the pan. I don't think that companies are going to realize this isn't a great experience and then next year no. go back to capacitive. This is we're we're in for a couple of years of in-display fingerprint sensors until they can figure out something better, either a seamless face face ID system or a, I don't know, a much much more reliable finger or or uh hand-based biometrics or something. Um and Ideally, you don't want to have to unlock your phone at all, right? You just want your phone to know that you want to turn it on. You just want this ambient biometrics happening. That's what Smart Unlock does, right? It Or Smart Lock do, does. It recognizes when you're in your home and it unlocks your phone for you. Uh, when you're connected to a Bluetooth device, it does that. But there are still limitations. And right. I think we're getting closer to the day where we'll just be able to take advantage of, I pick up my phone, I turn it on, and it knows it's me. And there's something that it uses to determine that it's me. Um, and, but we should never have to think about it. And we're still at the, and I think Face ID gets you as close to that experience as possible because if it, when it works, it just works and it's pretty fast and it's not perfect, but it, it's this, it's, it's like as close to ambient as you can get. And I found even with the last generation iris scanner on the Note 9, which which was about as good as it got on the, on Samsung phones. Mm-hmm. It was pretty fast and pretty reliable. And I feel like this is this is going a this is taking a back step. And I, I just wonder if Samsung didn't realize that this first generation ultrasonic sensor was going to put them in this awkward position, or whether it was like it's not going to matter because the rest of the phone is so advanced and people really aren't going to care. And I mean, if this sensor worked is so just think about the the core part of it in its placement and the idea of it is superior to having it on the Absolutely. But so if the if the execution was uh, on the same level or even, you know, very, very close to a traditional capacitive sensor, then it wouldn't be a problem. And I think to your point, Daniel, that it still isn't really a problem when you know this is kind of your only thing that you can nitpick about on the phone 
I oh no, I have I have a lot more Aside to think from about the cameras, on this film, maybe because <laughs> yeah, I I have a I'm having a serious problem with with the camera, and I um I want to talk about that next, Jerry, because get into it. You wrote something about how Samsung leads in every category except for the camera, and yeah. this is a problem that the company's faced for the last three years or so, um, and it's become more pronounced with every generation of Pixel moving that much further ahead. And it's really frustrating because I went from using a Pixel, and I you know, I have a daughter, I take so many photos of her. Like, it, all my, my phones are just entirely photos of my daughter and my dog. Um, and when I was using the Pixel, it was revelatory. Like, I could take for granted that when it didn't crash and burn, as it sometimes does, <laughs> if it took a good photo, or if it took a photo, it was probably going to be a really good photo. Um, the Galaxy S10 crushes detail on faces to the point where it looks like a painting. And this is without beauty mode. It doesn't matter what lighting I'm in. It doesn't matter how quickly the person is moving. If I f- take a photo of my daughter, there's almost no detail in her face. And it's bad. And I don't understand why this is happening in 2019. Because it happened in 2018 and 2017, and this is the exact same camera. That's, but that's not. I mean, I, I know you said yeah, because. It's this, I mean, it's, but it, it's it is 2019, same. and this is two years yeah. worth of missed opportunities. And that's what I'm finding so strange is that in all other situations, this camera is really, really strong. And yet, when you want to take a photo of something meaningful, when you don't want to take a photo of a facade, but something really close to you, like your own family it does not pull through for you. And that's what I find so disappointing here. And it's tough. It's, we, we're judging it against the, the Pixel camera. And to a lesser extent, I know a lot of people that are listening probably haven't used it. Huawei is doing something very similar and just as good. If you take those two out of the equation, the, I'm going to guess that the S10 camera is as good or better than every other phone in existence. But you can't take those two out of the equation because they exist. Uh, it's very clear that the the shortcoming is in that uh, algorithmic processing of the data that it's getting out of the camera because the, the kind of processing, the JPEG processing that you're getting in the, the last few generations of Samsung phones is really, really basic looking. It's taken this information with a really wide aperture and a, a solid sensor and then just kind of, you know, up the smoothing and just kind of crush all of the details so that it's it's looks smooth when viewed at full size, kind of on, you know, at five inches or whatever on your screen. And that's that's it. It doesn't do any kind of smart recognition of the scene. I mean, I, I know that we've all used the last couple of generations of Samsung phones now that have this scene optimizer thing built in and it does absolutely nothing. It, it doesn't matter where you, whether you turn on or off scene optimizer or you let it, you know, recognize that this is a building or this is a person's face or this is dark, uh, air, a dark area or you're shooting into the sun. It doesn't matter. It takes the same photo no matter what. And I think that that's your real big differentiator. And that's, becoming more and more apparent, as you said, with each generation of these other cameras that do use really advanced processing. Now, uh, to be fair, because I imagine somewhere there's someone working at Samsung that's just hanging their head and feels sad about what you just said. 
You said it takes the same picture no matter what, but if it can take the same picture and the scene is wildly different, that means it's working as intended. Yeah, so... It's just not a thing it, you know. Well, and this is also... I mean, I'm just going to come back and just continue to be the Samsung stand in this pod, I, I guess. But, like, here's the thing. The camera opens up every single time. It takes a photo every single time you press the shutter button. You can press and hold the shutter key for 15 seconds. It'll take, as, you know, dozens and dozens of photos in a row. It will never, for, like, it'll it'll never not save a photo. It'll never not share a photo. Like, these are all problems that Google's camera has every yeah. single time that I open the camera. And so, and no, I don't care about the latest, you know, security patch that supposedly fixed the camera. It didn't, it's still slow and terrible. So obviously they have engineers that are doing certain things. They just don't have that next level image processing part yet. I think a lot of that is, it goes beyond image processing and it comes down to, you don't have a huge sensor like you do in a standalone camera. And we can use machine learning and artificial intelligence to try to make a picture look almost as good. And that's where Samsung is not up to par yet. Yeah. This very much feels like, uh, take a, you know, take a photo out of your cam, you know, your actual camera, like your, you know, your Nikon or your Olympus or whatever, and just take the automatically generated JPEG or put it in Lightroom and hit auto. Like that's what you get. You don't get the, like, I spent 15 minutes in Photoshop tweaking specific things like you do every time you take a pixel photo. Yeah, but I mean, the the thing is that this is, this camera is, is so well set up to be successful. I mean, there are, there, there's so many things going for it and, and, and yet the, the overwhelming emotion I get when I look at the photos of my daughter that I take with this camera is disappointment. You know, it like if I had a, if I had a pixel, cause I, t- I mean, think about like the, the way that a parent takes photos, right? I take 20 photos at a time and I want mostly, I just want one photo. That's really good. If I use a, a pixel to take 20 photos yeah, maybe three or four of them wouldn't take. And I, I I know I'm not trying to defend the pixel here. I know this is a really bad argument, but just hear me out. If three or four of them mess up or if I miss the first, and I don't want to miss the first second because that's when I actually want to take the photo. But when I take 20 photos and 16 of them are really good and one of them is outstanding, that's better for me as a parent who wants to share photos than 20 photos that are no good. And that's the that's really what I come out with is that the Pixel's camera is unreliable. It often fails outright, and it makes me crazy because when I open the camera to take a split second photo, it it often is too slow to do it. But at the end of the day, taking a, a second a photo a couple seconds later that's perfect is often better than getting the photo in the right moment and having it be blurry or with no detail. Definitely less disappointment, like way less disappointment. I mean, there's d- disappointment in both situations. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. But I think the Pixel is less disappointing for my needs. And I was just so hoping that the Galaxy would fix my issues as a, a, a photographer of people this year. Uh, mm-hmm. because that's, you know, so you, you can take amazing landscape photos with the wide angle. You can take very good photos in almost any other situation with the main camera on, on the galaxy but 
uh, anyway. Well, the reason why it comes out when you talk about people in particular is because we have, uh, as humans, we have this subconscious understanding of what a person looks like and what the details are supposed to be. And that's why recreating uh, facial expressions and, you know, all of these things artificially is really hard. So when you see a face that just doesn't look quite right or the details, like we talk about this a lot with portrait mode you can immediately recognize when it doesn't have the depth map right for, you know, hair or glasses or things like that, because it's, it's so easy for us to tell just at a glance. Whereas when you're talking about a a big open scene of a building or a restaurant or something with a wide angle camera, you don't, you've never seen that exact scene before. And so you don't understand how that is, uh, you know, what that is. So that's where that disconnect comes in and it's extremely pronounced. Right. And in, in one case, you're focused on the scene, and in the other case, you're focused on the detail. Yeah, you don't care about the rest of the stuff around it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it really shows, if, if you step back and look at it, Samsung is an amazing hardware manufacturer. There is no doubt. The, the S10, all, all three versions, proves that. They, they're unparalleled. Uh, I'll be the first one to say that, and I'll fight you if you try to disagree <laughs> with me. But when it comes to software, they don't have that level of expertise yet. I'm going to say yet. They're depending a lot on Qualcomm. And Qualcomm has a generic way they make photos of images that that you capture. They turn them into, you know, uh, something you can view. And that has to be pretty generic. It has to work for every smartphone that uses this processor and now every laptop that uses this processor every device that uses a snapdragon 855 whatever camera package is there it has to be able to turn those captured points of light into a photo when you do something generically you're not going to have that you know insane level of in this case facial detail when you're specializing something and it takes software along with the hardware to specialize. That's where Google is just, they're, they're nailing it. They're, they're using generic sensors and lenses on the Pixel products. There's nothing fancy. They have their own core that assembles the photos and they write the software that goes with that. And a lot of it is what we call AI. It knows what a person's face looks like. Because somewhere somebody has fed millions of pictures of people's faces into a computer and told them, this is a face. This is also a face. No, but Samsung's done this. I mean, Samsung, that's part of its, 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 its um, presentation to, to us, to the, to the public, is that we are using machine learning. We fed millions of photos into computers so that we can, yeah. we can identify more types of scenes. When I, when I, point my galaxy s10 at my daughter uh, and i turn off scene recognition i see the viewfinder change there's obvious things that it is doing to the exposure to the contrast to uh you know to object tracking to things like that that Mm -hmm. that when when scene optimizer is turned off it's not doing and i wonder you know, it's not a matter of, but it doesn't fix it. Doesn't it. Fix like, it, it doesn't it just, make the photo better. It's just doing things. It, it, well, that that's where you have to start. You you have to start by recognizing that it's a face, and when there's a face, that means there's a person there. 
and you're going to want to change the exposure details. No, uh, look, what, what it comes down to fu- fundamentally is that Samsung does not like grain. It just has a it has a fundamental opposition to graininess. And what mm-hmm. it does is instead of allowing things to look grainy, even at high ISO, it uses it, it just uses smoothing and it uses this this artificial looking smoothing filter basically on everything that it does and it started Mm -hmm. doing this with the s8 it made it worse with the s9 and it's just as bad with the s10 and what i want is i want to allow detail even with even if in the background you see speckles of grain because yeah this is a tiny camera sensor and it should have grain because that's what real life is when you're taking photos with a tiny sensor and it is a it, it is a conscious decision that this team is making. And I think it's the wrong decision. But I can't change it because there's no option, even in pro mode, yeah. to undo it. It just does this smoothing. And mm-hmm. you know, if, if you lose detail, you can't add it back, right? When you take a photo and it's grainy, you can add smoothing to it. You can do stuff in post to actually right. get it the way you want. But if you if you flatten a, a photo, if you flatten detail right from the beginning, especially if you're not shooting in raw, then that detail's gone forever. So I don't believe that Samsung is doing this accidentally or that it doesn't have the capability of giving me what I want out of a photo. It is making a conscious decision to do this, and I think it's the wrong decision. And I'm always going to stand by the way that I like photos taken. But the ra- reality is that this is the most successful smartphone brand in the world outside of the iPhone, and millions of people are going to be, quote, affected by this decision, and they may not know any better. So I wonder, you know, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily something a lot of people are going to complain about, but I do think it's something that people should know. I, I think the best of both worlds is... Samsung smooths the, the picture unless there's a reason not to. And I think that's just something, I, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking is how would I tackle this problem? I don't work for Samsung and I have no idea what they're thinking, but I could see, you know, okay, we, we need to smooth out the pictures because users don't want to see a sky that's all blotchy and grainy. So we smooth the pictures out. Oh, well, that means we lose detail in faces or in the fur of a cat or whatever. Well, we can use machine learning to not smooth that part. So let's get that working. And hopefully one day that's, that's what can be done. Right now it doesn't seem like they're doing anything that direction. I, I really don't know. I'm just taking a guess here. So um, let's, let's take a, a second and, and put out the homework assignment for this week. What's your thought? on uh what's your preference on smartphone photography do you like the samsung method where you get a smoother photo that's more consistent higher dynamic range lots of color vibrant uh you know lots of smoothing um with you know at the expense of 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 any grain or would you like something a little bit more real like what's on the pixel what's on the iphone um you know what's what's your take on it send us a an email podcast at android central uh, and let us know. Do me a favor. When, when you do that, let us know how you look at your pictures, too. Because I think whether we know it or not, that makes a big difference. If you look at your photos on your phone primarily, 
you're probably going to want something different than if you look at them on a big monitor. So just to just to go back to that uh, homework assignment, uh, two weeks ago I asked people whether they are interested in foldable phones, how they you know how they think about uh, what they think about foldable phones. We got a, quite a few responses, and overwhelmingly, and this surprised me, Andrew. Overwhelmingly, people said they prefer the Mate X over the Galaxy Fold design. That is bonkers, <laughs> and it just shows it just shows how many people have not touched these things. To be fair, though, we've only touched one of them. We've only seen and touched the uh, Gal- the um, Huawei Mate X. Yeah. So I don't know how the Fold's going to work, but I I agree. I think the Fold is going to be a much more usable product. All right, so let's take our first break. Uh, And when we come back, we are going to talk Android Q and what to look forward to in this year's update. We'll be right back. This episode of the Android Central podcast is brought to you by Wix. Wix is the place where you go to build a great website. Over 140 million people use Wix to build their website, and there's a reason. It's because you can get started really quickly and for free. And there are over 500 stunning templates to choose from where you can add your own text, images, videos, and more. Whether you're starting a new business or a new podcast, you can build a website on Wix. You have access to a huge array of tools, including unlimited fonts, design effects, HT video, grids, layouts, lots of different code capabilities, and media galleries for storing all of your photos and video. And it's all what you see, what you get. You do not have to know HTML, CSS, or any other coding. When you're done, it will look completely yours and you didn't have to lift a finger. So if you're interested in learning about Wix and building your own website for free, go to wix.com slash podcast. That's wix.com slash podcast to get 10% off your premium order. That's wix.com slash podcast. And thank you, Wix, for sponsoring the Android Central podcast. Okay, so Jerry, uh, you take Wednesdays off. Uh, let's, let's, let's just put that out there. You work yeah. six days a week. You work on weekends. You work your ass off. But you have a, a standing take Wednesdays off. And whenever Google drops something on a Wednesday, I want to go to Mountain View and I want to, I, I just want to like put my hand in somebody's face and just shake it and just be like, you don't know how frustrating it is that Jerry can't be here for this right now. Do you know the crazy part? I used to take Tuesdays off and Google used to push stuff out on Tuesdays. And that was part of the reason why we I switched to Wednesdays. I know. And we thought, it, and now it's, it's release Wednesday. It's so frustrating. Anyway, so Google was, we thought it might release Q on Monday of this week. And we had, we put out a, we put out a bolo. We said, hey, everybody keep your eyes open for this release. Because in the morning of uh, this past Monday, we had a bug tracker that was talking about the Android Q beta. So we're like, okay, it's going to happen today. Didn't happen on Monday. Didn't happen on Tuesday. So Inevitably, Wednesday comes and Google just drops it uh, with a developer blog post, lots of little updates, plus some information about um, the number of betas that it will offer before it releases the public version. So 
let's dive into this because as I said at the beginning, this isn't a massive update from the look of things, but there is a very, very strong focus, in my opinion, on on security and privacy and mm-hmm. customization. So let's let's start with the first one because I think the privacy side of things, Jerry, is going to be the most important and most impactful for people when they do inevitably get, or inevitably, when they do eventually get that update to Android Q. Yeah, I, I think that's what Google is really going to want to talk to us about, you know, when we get to uh, Google I.O. and when they, you know, produce future blog posts is the privacy enhancements. And that's, you know, because... Google and Apple have faced some serious issues there. Uh, Apple have made a big deal about addressing them. Now Google's making a big deal about addressing them. Uh, Microsoft has made a big deal. As we get further and further into, you know, a connected way of living, this all becomes really important. And they they had to do something, and, and they stepped up to the plate in a way I think looks really good. So when you when you see this focus on, on privacy, uh, especially around permissions, around what apps are allowed to do in the background. What, what's, what's your overwhelming feeling? Are they filling in the blanks? Are they just getting things included that they were um, criticized for not including an in Android in the past? Or is this sort of working towards a future where people have much more granular control over their privacy and permissions? I think a, a little of everything. Uh, ideally, they want our phone. Uh, they want us to think that our phone maintains a a good level of privacy without us doing a lot of work to get there. That's I mean that's the goal of every company that makes these products we buy. And I I'm, I know for a fact that these were goals from the very first version of Android. This is how they wanted to do things. Because they're Google, they do collect so much information that leaves a vector open for that information to be collected. That means everything has to be done in a safe way that you feel good about using it. Unfortunately, it didn't happen that way, and it's we see a little bit each time. And I think that they really put the focus on, on Android Q to take a bunch of little pain points, correct them, and then bring them to the forefront and say, hey, maybe you never thought about this before, but here's how we did this, and here's why it's better for you. The user control aspect of it is just really important. Whether or not people actually end up using it in a in a large, you know, uh, I guess a large percentage of people, it isn't really relevant. It's the fact that you give people the option and to control all of these things and we kind of got there with the individual permission declaration. The problem was there was like the, the what happens after you accept or, you know, offer after you, I guess, accept the request to give the permission. Anyway, it, like what happens after that? Are, were people actually going to be diving into the app by app settings, you know, to, to revoke permissions later or, you know, it was never going to happen. So this move to, to offer people these options for, you know, just give it the permission for now, only give it the permission while the app is running, you know, kind of the iOS model and then giving you a centralized dashboard to go and check these things out. Again, people might not use that, uh, in any large kind of number, it's not going to be an overwhelming majority of people, but just having it there is, 
it, it makes Google look a whole lot better. And then, of course, the people that do want it benefit from it. Well, there's another thing that we never think about. And, um, you know, Google has to think about it all the time. This has to work in a way that it doesn't break people that are still using a Galaxy S6. You can't just be like Apple and put the hammer down and say, hey, on April 3rd, every app in the App Store has to be able to do this or it's not available. You're right. It has to work into the same permissions model from the app perspective, right. too. And that's hard. That's hard to do without breaking all the legacy stuff. And, man, every time we see 0.004% people still using gingerbread it makes me cringe and it makes me so happy I don't have to work under those kind of conditions. You know, we, we, we wouldn't even know because Google hasn't updated its developer console since October. Yeah, yeah. That, that was probably a smart thing to stop putting their, you know, their dirty laundry out there. But this is, that's a really good point, Jerry, is that you have to think about the legacy and also at the start, the, the people that do get the update, you know, especially in like, once it kind of gets out a little more mainstream just six months later or whatever, it starts to hit other devices is I think we're going to run into another level of user confusion about permissions in that, it, yeah. you know, it sounds really great at the time when you open up Twitter and you want to add your location to a tweet and it says, you know, only while the app is running uh, or in the foreground or whatever, give it location access but now that's going to generate all these other user complaints on the other end where they don't understand why it takes so long all of a sudden for that app to retrieve your location when you have it open. You know, it's going to be the Google Maps problem where Google Maps is amazing on Android because it just has permissions to do everything in the background. And that gives it all of this additional power. And it seems so seamless and fast. And it knows exactly where you are, which way you're pointed and all this other other kind of stuff. And that experience goes out the window as soon as you give people that option to cut back on all those permissions, not understanding at the time what it's going to create you know, what problems it's going to create down the road, you know, a week from now when you go to open up that app and nothing is updated. I, I have a confession to make. The uh, use my location only while your app is running has been one of my biggest frustrations about and Well, the lack of that mm-hmm. has been one of my biggest frustrations about Android for a while. And I spent a large chunk of the morning writing a blog post about that and looking into exactly how they're doing it. This time around, they're giving a whole bunch of options and examples for developers to not fall into that Google Maps on the iPhone trap. They're even, you know, giving suggestions. You should write your pop-up window like this. Use this wording. Let the users know. And here are ways you can help mitigate that by letting the users know why you may want to have location running all the time. And they've done a really good job with page after page of developer documentation about this one tiny feature, which is great to see. I mean, it's it's really interesting. Google was accused uh, of not being truthful, accused by uh, a U.S. Um, you know, congressional committee and a, and a Senate committee uh, separately of not making it obvious that it continues tracking you in some way, even when you turn off location services. Um, and it does this in a bunch of different aspects. For example, 
even if you have location services turned off, um, if you open up Google Maps, it will use Wi-Fi and and, and your cellular signal mm-hmm. to uh, update your location and store it in uh, in its kind of knowledge base, um, so that you know where you've been on the on the time graph. Uh, similarly, with Chrome, it does the same thing. With the camera, it can do that as well. Um, and there are there are a bunch of other examples. Uh, Google has since said that they are going to make this much more obvious for the for, for anybody using Android. But it seems interesting to me that it kind of it's going all in on location limitations for third party developers, but it seems to give itself a break to some extent when uh, its it own services are affected. There's another little tidbit that's not fully enabled in the beta yet called roles. Uh, you know, before you could designate a default, we'll use web browser as an example. They're making a change, and now your app can function in the role of a primary web browser. And there's different locations or different permissions it can ask for and different permissions it can declare based on its role. Yes, that's a roundabout way of doing it, but that leads me to believe that uh, no longer is Maps going to track your location via Wi-Fi hotspots because you didn't know you could turn that off. I think they're going to make it much more prominent that, hey, here is a setting you should know about now that they've made it available for every developer to tap into that. This is kind of heavy stuff, and I think it's important for for everybody yeah. to understand, you know, Google has, I don't think Google's ever been a bad actor when it comes to trying to track you nefariously, right? There's so many things that Google does for the benefit of the user experience. I mean, if you think of how many permissions you give Google in order to allow it or allow Google Assistant to work properly, right? you know, some people take, take umbrage to that because there are just so many things pieces of your own data that you have to contribute to make the system work. But it's to your benefit, right? Right. I, I understand it's to my benefit, and, and I use it, and I take umbrage to it. But my issue is that people don't know. They don't make it simple and obvious. I understand because I literally spend nights reading stupid stuff like developer documentation because I find it interesting. Most people aren't going to do that because they don't find it interesting. Well, those people still deserve to know what's going on. And Google doesn't do a great job of letting them know. Right. So, I mean, this is about owning up to its past faults and failures when it came to um, permissions. It's also about giving users more power over those permissions. I think giving uh, users the ability to block location access in the background is I think the biggest the biggest upgrade, if you will, um, over previous Android versions. And it mat- it it catches up to iOS that's allowed this for, I don't know, four years now. Um but it but it will also while, yeah. make your phone run more efficiently too, right? Because you mm-hmm. you don't realize how many mm-hmm. apps that you just gave blanket location permission to track it over the course of a day just because it can. Um, and there's there's always this lingering feeling that if you have an app that you maybe forgot about or 
it got an update behind the scenes and you already gave that permission and it started using it for for bad reasons it'll you will never know about it so it's sort of i mean if you go back to like remember the the blackberry priv and the dtech app and how the priv started using its own um first party way of identifying when apps were using services in the background and then with android 7 no android 6 with marshmallow that got built in to android in general so it, with the priv it shipped with with uh, lollipop that was separate it had to build its own permissions model with marshmallow that got you know it became a first party and native experience now we're sort of at that next level and i wonder will people care will people actually use it or is it going to be something that most people just give blanket permissions to still and just don't don't use it at all i mean most people will probably just give blanket permissions just like even with this switch to on you know technically on runtime permission uh granting in the last couple of versions most apps when you open it it says hey we're about to declare like 15 permissions please accept them and then you say allow 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 all the way through the list so yeah. it's not even really being used like it's being used in the way that most people are going to interact with it in the first place so it's already kind of they're already kind of getting around it and that's but that's what i'm saying before is that's fine like google is doing its part for the most part, giving you the tools that so that if you do want to manage that, you can do it. Because right now, uh, it's it's kind of opaque. The users not reading what they click OK on it is a big mm-hmm. problem. There's no way to fix it, but that's we have to see things like Google making it so apps can't cover the whole screen, the whole screen overlay. You know, the, the, the true Android enthusiasts, they had a bit of an uproar. You can't write an app that covers the entire screen unless the app itself is a full screen app. Uh, it's weird to describe without seeing it, but it's because there were apps that were putting fake buttons in the way. The login hijacks. That were transparent. Yeah, and, and you tap these buttons inadvertently and it costs you money. Uh, that's because users just said, okay without reading it and thinking, now why would this weather app need to draw over my entire screen? Yeah. So Google understands that there's an issue that people aren't reading and just clicking through. And I think understanding is the first way to fixing it. So can we talk about something that's uh, the most important update in Android Q, which is that the sharing uh, dialogue might not suck? <laughs> Or it's going to suck worse. <laughs> oh, Jerry, I, so I don't know. I just I want to have I want to have hope. How could it suck yeah, it worse? Can't. It's so slow. If if you use a pixel, Why? it's going to suck oh, it's, worse. It's so slow and terrible right now. Because if your phone runs Android Q, it only wants to show applications that are built for Android Q's new sharing system. It will show the others, but by default. Those are shown in a secondary way. I haven't been able to figure out exactly how that looks or what that means. But that tells me that you're going to see a lot of blank, empty space in your sharing screen 
or it's going to take forever for it to get populated just because I am cynical. I don't know. Okay, here, hang on a second. I'm going to push back on that because what they're describing in the blog post doesn't sound that way. It says, in Android Q, we're making this, we're making the share sheet quicker and easier with sharing shortcuts, which lets, which let users jump directly into another app to share content. Developers can publish share targets that launch a specific activity in their apps with content attached. And these are shown to users in the share UI. Right. So they're basically building these little shortcuts, these little app intents in advance. Mm-hmm. So you'll be able to, like, if you're, if, if you have um, a song that you want to share in Spotify, for instance, you can do that. And it'll, Spotify will build that little bit of code and it'll just, it'll just make it aware uh, in, in every app that supports it. I, I don't see how that could potentially be shower. What I'm saying is if you're using Android Q and you just press the share button on a photo or a file, that dialogue that opens down at the bottom that shows those sharing intents, by default, it only wants to use the new sharing intents. It will populate with intents built for a older platform, you know, an older API level, but it doesn't say how it's going to do that, when, or how long that's going to take. And I always get cynical when all the details are oh, sure like like the deep ones are going to take a long time, just like yeah. home screen, you know, long press um, shortcuts in the apps and like app slices. You remember those Android pie, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be those kind of things before you get the deep offering where it recognizes the content and then gives you more uh, you know, second or third level deep actions in the receiving app. I mean, but once you do get there and there are specific apps that offer that kind of workflow exactly the way you want, it's going to be helpful. So it's not going to be like share to Gmail. It'll be, it'll give you an option to like attach this file to a new message, you know, because the apps like right now, you it's really weird. You have very specific things that, it makes sense to share to apps. And then there are also lots of times where the apps that you're sharing to are very amorphous and it's not very clear what you're, what you're doing once you get that content shared to the next app. And, uh, but really no, even without any of those improvements, if it's actually going to be faster, like Google says that it is, uh, that's already immediately the the win of the update the the share sheet is so so slow when it tries to populate all of these things because as has been noted the share sheet populates them at the time that you hit the share button and it can take a lot of time to pull all of the apps on your phone to find out what can receive and uh, this should help with that and to be fair i'm reading incomplete developer documentation so i'll throw that out there too but i still always think for the worst and prepare for the worst have faith that's all i'm asking jerry have faith this is this is this will be this i'll will try be good. all right let's talk a little bit about some of the audio visual updates because i think these are interesting google is introducing something called a dynamic depth image that will allow camera apps to capture depth information and save it as a separate uh as a separate bit of metadata so it'll have um, it, it'll call the dynamic depth image will consist of a JPEG and XMP metadata related to depth related elements, uh, as well as a depth and confidence map embedded in the same file. And they are, they're making 
dynamic depth and open format for Android. So uh, companies will be allowed to implement it into their own camera apps. I assume third parties as well will be able to do that. Like if Instagram wanted to do that, they probably could. Um, what, what do you think about this? Because most cameras, even cheap budget phones have a second camera now for depth. Is this going to make it better or is this going to make it as good as the pixels, uh, you know, bokeh, or is it just kind of a, a lighter version of that? It's really weird that Google's doing this itself because so often this is something that camera or, um, phone makers just license out as part of the, just the general, like the chipset that they are using. Yeah. Qualcomm probably hates this. Yeah. It feels really <laughs> weird to have it done on the Android side because I'm not sure. And maybe Jerry will know this. Like, I don't know how you can incorporate both the things that are in part of Android versus just going the full suite of, you know, chipset provided things. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of odd. I'm pretty sure that, you know, you, leverage a contract with qualcomm you're paying for it either way let's just put it yeah. that way even if you don't use it but uh i well this is good because not everybody's using a qualcomm 855 and you know maybe they're using a chipset that's two years old or maybe they're using a mediatek chipset that doesn't give you this you know detailed depth map so now android provides you know a semi-detailed depth map and uh one thing they didn't make a big deal about that, but is a pretty big deal, is support for uh, grayscale. You, you, a, a black and white camera now can collect just the same amount of data as a color camera. And that doesn't mean just data you can see. That means things like depth mapping and, you know, uh, trying to use words that don't make Exposure me sound like an idiot. as well. It, well, yeah, it, 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 sure. Light exposure. There's lots of things that are actually better captured in a, you know, a grayscale camera. And it takes me back to man. If LG had this when they had that black and white camera, what was that? The G6. That you know, that was a pretty good camera anyway. But if they could have used that grayscale sensor all the time, because we know with Android Pie now you can have simultaneous data streams from however many cameras you want on the back of the phone, we are using processing to make tiny sensors give us great pictures. So there's a bit more of Android Q to talk about, but we're going to take our second break and thank our sponsor. And uh, we will be right back. Stay tuned. This episode of the Android Central Podcast is brought to you by Keeps. Look, losing hair sucks. I, I know. I've got a thinning top myself, and it makes life a little bit harder, I'll be honest. So Keeps is a really inexpensive way to make sure that you keep what you already have. Getting started with Keeps is super easy. It takes just five minutes to answer a few questions and snap some photos of your hair. And a licensed physician will then review your information online and recommend the right treatment for you. Then it's shipped right to your door every three months. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. So you may have tried these before, but you've definitely not gotten them at this price. Keeps can be as little as $10 a month or most likely $30 to $35 a month. 
But if you sign up now, you get your first month free. That's five minutes, $1 a day, and you get your first month free. Look, losing your hair sucks. So why don't you do something about it right now? Keep what you have with Keeps. Go to keeps.com slash ACP. That's keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash ACP to get your first month of treatment free. Keeps. Hair today, hair tomorrow. Okay, so we're, we're going to kind of run through the rest of this list because there's a lot of stuff here. Um, I'm wondering, Jerry, Google is really pushing developers, well, they're actually forcing developers to keep their apps um, using the latest SDK or, or basically by the end of this year, every single app on the Play Store that is allowed to be there um, will have to target at least Android 9 Pi. Why, why is Google doing this? They've dialed that back a bit. Any updates? If your app is there and you just never bothered to update right. it, they're going to leave it. They're not going to monkey but with you it. But if you want to submit an update, it, which then it has most to. most do. Right. It, your update has to be built to work with all of Android Pi's features and enhancements. Why is like what's the advantage to the average user, even a user that isn't even on Pi? Uh, number one, security and privacy. We, you know, they're they're making a big deal about that in Android Q, but we really tend to notice how our phones act with us to keep us, you know, more secure and and you know our details a little bit more private. But it's very important that the developers have. They're corralled into forcing, you know, force the developers to do things a certain way that maybe helps benefit the user's privacy and online security. They, they put more of that in every SDK update. And when you tell a developer, okay, you can't use that four-year-old SDK to update your apps anymore. You have to target this version. That means they'll have to stay within these new constraints to keep our personal information a little bit you know more personal and private that that's a good thing uh that and that that allows them to depreciate some of these older features that maybe were stop gaps you know they're they're trying to make software work on i think the last last year there was 14,900 different models uh that's got to be a headache because they're they all have different hardware so they have to do things that just makes it work that maybe they wish they didn't have to do. They found a better way to do it. So now they can stop allowing people to use that weird stopgap measure that maybe wasn't as good. Uh, maybe it performed poorly on certain devices or, you know, lesser hardware didn't, wasn't able to handle it. Let's get rid of all that. And it's, they, they stand on stage and show off these new features every year and they want to try to make sure you get a chance to use them. That way you'll look to Google the next time you buy a phone. So one of the things that uh, Google's also talking about is improvement to ART, uh, the, the runtime compiler. Um, and particularly here, they're talking about something that's really interesting. They're saying that um, as, part of, um, as part of Android Q, they're imp- Proving something called profile guided optimization, which was built to speed up app start time by identifying and pre-compiling frequently executed parts of the code. 
Um, but that was stored locally. So if you up, if you were using YouTube a lot or Instagram, it would compile parts of it and keep it in memory. And then it would, it would, it would run when you started the app and it would increase, it would, it would increase the speed at which the app launched with Q. They're now using cloud-based profiles of, uh, cloud-based, uh, profile guided optimization, which are anonymized aggregate art profiles that lets the runtime compiler pre-compile parts of your app, your being the developer, even before it's run, giving a significant jumpstart to the overall app optimization process. Um, cloud-based profiles benefit every app and they're already available to devices running Android P and higher. Uh, this is really interesting. That's such a Google solution to the problem. It is. It's so cool. I think this is really cool because they're leveraging their enormous cloud infrastructure. Uh, they're using the cloud to benefit Android users, even though they may not realize it. And it's it's completely anonymized. So there's no privacy implications here at all. Um, what do you think about this, Jerry? I, I don't like it. And it's because... I use Google Wi-Fi and Comcast, and if you use Comcast, you know that three times next month your internet's going to go out. Uh, when my internet goes out, my local network just basically craps to nothing because Google Wi-Fi depends on a bunch of information that's stored in the cloud. That's great, and, and when it works, it works really well. I can see the benefit of using it, but you won't always be able to be connected to the cloud what if you want to store videos from YouTube and watch them while you're in a train tunnel? You know, if you'd ride a train to work every day, you've probably been in situations where you didn't have internet and wish you had. Yeah. The, the question is how much, I don't like think that's how much what's happening this, here though. I think if it's, yeah, like how much is it kickstarting it and how much is it all the time relying on it? Well, I, I hope they're still saving these, uh, I hate to call them profiles, but I think that's, that's what it is. I hope they're still saving them locally as well. That would solve my issue completely. I guess the question is, this is a feature that Google's never going to talk about publicly. This is not going to be something that Google no. you know, brings up at its Pixel 4 launch. It'll never write anything about it outside of the developer blog. And yet is an example of the kind of thing that really only three companies can do, right? Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. Yep. And only one of those companies has a mobile operating system that's used by 2 billion people all around the world. And right. the thing that I love about this is that it's probably fine to take for granted that most people running an Android phone have a decent connection to the internet every single second of the day. So this sure. is the, I mean, even if it does not work all the time, the fact that it's saying it will improve startup times for apps like YouTube and Google Keep by 21% or Gmail by 12%, like that's not insignificant, especially how many times we open our apps. Um, and it's one of those imperceptible improvements that will be taken for granted very quickly but I, as the nerd in me, just loves this because it's it's. And I mean, <laughs> think about what Google is going to announce at GDC, right? They're going to announce a, a, a cloud streaming gaming service of some sort, 
and everything is going to be done in the back end. We, this is not the first time that a company's done this. You know, NVIDIA has, uh, or, or it's NVIDIA, right, that has uh, mm-hmm. th- this yep. GeForce Now. Yeah. Um, but if you use the beta, this is so much better and so much different. And it's really fascinating that we're at this point where latency is low enough and that you can take for granted that people have good enough internet connections that this is possible. And it plays out on this macro scale with game streaming where you have to have, you know, 500 megabits or whatever to make it work. And then you have this kind of thing where PGO is going to be operational with a 3G connection and it'll happen completely in the background. And most people won't know it's there, but it's still going to improve your experience. And I just, I love that. And look at the middle ground, like the middle ground part that Google's done with uh, instant apps and apps that stream directly from google search results on your phone and obviously there are still some hurdles there but you can tell that these are the kinds of things that google can actually execute on and not just in the extreme cases on the the high end and the low end they can kind of just sprinkle in this little bit of you don't realize which parts are online and which parts are offline and i want to say nobody's happier than me when i'm wrong about google failing (laughs) at something uh it I, I, It's a part of my job that I take very seriously to not trust what I'm being told at face value and looking into it deeper. I want to be very cynical of Google because I know what they're capable of. And I don't like to downplay any of the things they say. I always look for the bad side and am pleasantly surprised when I'm wrong. Okay, let's let's run through uh, a couple more of these because there, there's a few more features that are exciting. Uh, Google is, they teased this earlier in the year or last year alongside uh, Samsung's announcement of its flexible screen technology, Infinity Flex, but now it's official. They will support foldable phones and innovative new screens with Q, but this could also lead, and we've seen early versions of it, to a desktop mode for Android, as well as freeform apps in more places on Android. Uh, Jerry, walk us through quickly what that means for things like Chrome, for things like Android tablets, or just for larger screen foldable displays that need freeform to work. If you've used a, a Windows or Mac PC of any sort, you know what it's like to be able to move your Windows and take advantage of all of the desktop. And then you go to an Android tablet or a Chromebook running Android apps. You're very frustrated that you can't do that. This allows that to happen. So you're gonna you're gonna tell me that Google is gonna make interface elements and apps that scale to the size of the screen that you're using? Uh, they've never tried well, this before. <laughs> it is shocking to me that they're trying this. <laughs> well, I think more importantly, they're going to let you resize what you see and have those elements and the content resize with that was that was, sar- that was, that was sarcasm part. by the way folks i know and here's the I thing know, it, and you're also going to tell me that they're going to let you have a windowed environment in which you can resize things like they've been trying to do with android apps on chromebooks for years and yeah, fail to do properly that's what they say i i might my, my th- this actually has my hopes up because i've i've I use a Chromebook every day. And and yes, this I have been frustrated by uh, one app we use for communication here at work is Slack. The Android app for it is pretty good until you put it on a Chromebook 
and you either use it full screen or it's useless. And you just use well, the web full page. Full screen, it's useless because it's just a bunch of white space. It frustrates me every working hour of every day. This might fix it, so I'm going to be hopeful. Okay, uh, what what else is there? So there's a new settings panel, blah blah blah, kind of cool. I like, I do like the on demand or relevant settings becoming available when you're experiencing when you're in an app. You know, the the example is you open up the browser, which of course needs the internet. And if you have airplane mode turned on or Wi-Fi turned off, or there, you know, there's no connection noticed. Uh, it, yeah. it it'll offer those exact settings. Uh, you know, things like that. The kind of contextual information is very interesting. Yeah, sure, whatever. Um, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's no share sheet, but um, come on. Wi-Fi performance mode, Jerry. We were talking about how important low latency uh, Wi-Fi is to gaming. Um, this is something that you'll act. Developers will actually allow users to pick. You can have uh, low latency or high performance mode for real-time yep. gaming clearly gaming is an increasingly important part of the android experience and with very very high uh you know high gpu testing games um the 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 overall phone is just is just tested more like the 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 load is higher there are fewer background apps available you're using most of the ram so have being able to prioritize the network stack to uh, ensure a low latency experience is pretty important. Um, I'd love to see this backported to previous versions of Android because nobody that plays PUBG is going to use this on a pixel for the next like <laughs> two years, but whatever. Um, the one other thing that I was interested in learning about native MIDI, a there's a native MIDI API here. Uh, Google has been criticized for having uh, performance degradation with, uh, with real-time audio processing, and that's why a lot of DJs and other um, music producers prefer iOS to Android. Do you think this is we're now at the point where we have real-time low-latency um, music production, or, or are we still going to be behind here? Um, we're probably still going to be behind, but this addresses the root of the problem, and that is using java to interface with a c++ application and i know that's that's really out in the weeds and really you know high level here but that's the problem with audio interface through android is you write an application in java and java applications are processed in a certain particular way and c++ applications like you know maybe the actual driver that supports the hardware you may be attached to is processed in a different way, and the communication between them has always sucked. That's what they're addressing now, and that's that, I think that's a pretty big deal. All right, good. And finally, Andrew, this actually has me pretty excited. Um, there is an update for app security. There, uh, Google has improved the biometric prompt API. It's the unified authentication framework for fingerprint sensors and other forms of uh, biometric authentication. They are now going to officially support face unlock so if they have if they determine that the form of face um, unlock is secure enough they will allow you to open say your password manager with your face as opposed to with your fingerprint and that's the the big big part of it is if it's determined to be secure enough uh where are they going to draw that line uh it's probably going to be uh they're going to draw that line much higher than where we're at with our current level of face unlock on 
you know, whatever the Pixel 3 or the Galaxy S10, it's going to be higher up. But I, I do appreciate that this is a forward looking thing that they realize that as a lot of these manufacturers move away from capacitive fingerprint sensors, a lot of them may consider going the route of Apple with, um, you know, multiple camera um, IR sensing face unlock rather than your typical single camera face unlock. And this is going to be so important. So we don't run into another issue like back in the day with fingerprint sensors where Samsung rolls out its own fingerprint sensor and has to have its own API to get into things. And it's not built into the system. Uh, this is something that Google should absolutely be taking on, on the, on the platform level. All right. So wired it's coming tired. It hasn't been here for two years already because yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. two years too late in my opinion, <laughs> but at least it's coming. Uh, and we're talking more about like Huawei mate 20 pro type face unlock where it's like a, there's a true mm-hmm. depth sensor there to give you a 3d uh, view of your face as opposed to, as you said, RGB camera based unlock, which is super, super insecure. Also, Andrew side notes they're all the Mac or the uh, the iOS and Mac blogs have been like lambasting Samsung for being for the Galaxy S10 being able to be tricked with a photo. Uh, My God, nobody I, I can't understand this. why. Why is this like, a thing? Why is this like a obviously thing? this has been the case for like five years now? Nobody's. Ex- I cannot stand that people are harping on this again, as if Samsung made any claim that it was any more secure than the one before that was you quote unquote tricked with a photo. It's like, it's like, yeah, we know that that was the same as before. And it's the same as the pixel three and the one plus six. It's like, it's all the exact same. I just don't, you know, the headlines, I guess they write themselves and then you, you make the article to fit it. Do better. Do better. Yes. There, there are a couple other big changes in Android Q that aren't getting any press that you may be interested in. So, you know, I'll tell you, you can go look at the developer's blog, enterprise profiling, uh, you know, work profile for a company owned or device or one you enroll in comp- your company, big updates in a, in overall to the way the profiles are initiated and provisioned and how they work. And something called angle, which is a Chrome prod project where it lets Phones with crappy GPUs play good games. That's just an easy way to put it. It's a layer on top of OpenGL that allows a phone with an older version of OpenGL to use you know, features in newer versions. And it works pretty well in Chrome. I'm excited to see that work. That's really cool. And those are really high level. If you're interested in that, the developer's blog, if you go to... Uh, uh, and developeranddroid.com slash preview. You can read all the platform notes. Some really cool stuff. And there's stuff a couple there. other things that we didn't really get to talk about. New codecs, uh, support for HDR10+, Plus, which is which debuted on the Galaxy S10, but uh, I guess it's coming officially as, as you know a, a full uh, platform-wide support with, with Q. That's a big deal because you need devices that you know enable it to get content providers to enable it. And now, you know, six months from now, you're going to have, you know, a, a billion phones that are on Android ah. Q, hopefully. And that's, that's well, whenever Samsung does it, let's put it that way. That is going to, you know, Warner Brothers and the rest of the content creators are going to say, hey, 
we need to put this in everything we make. So this has had to happen, and I'm really glad to see it. Um, all right, so that's Android Q in a nutshell. I think we'll we'll leave on on this note. We're not going to have time to talk about the Moto G7, uh, other than to say, uh, read my review. I really like it. If you need a $300 phone, go buy it. Um, Andrew, I want to leave on this note. The Android Q beta supports the original Pixel and Pixel XL. Does this mean that those Crazy. phones will actually get upgraded even though they are technically no longer supported? What's your prediction? I don't think they're going to get the I don't think they're going to get the official update, but it's a nice little tip of the cap to to fans that have an old old Pixel. I'll bet you want to put do. money on it. Gentlemen's bet. Yeah, I'll put All five right. bucks. On okay, it. you got it, Jerry. Because I, I, I think that I think they're going to do it just to prove they can for no other reason. But all right, I'll officiate this bet. We'll meet back here in August when there's the official version likely released, <laughs> and I will make sure that <laughs> one of the two of you gets that five dollars, uh, and uh, and you'll all hear about it here. Okay, so that's the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening, Andrew, Jerry. Thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you, you, Daniel. Uh, if you, Mister and Mrs. Listener, you uh, you have any feedback, any any thoughts on this show, please let us know at podcast at androidcentral.com. We love 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 hearing from you every week, and uh, we will try not to let a week go by again without another podcast. So that's it. My name is Daniel Bader. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again very soon. So long. Adios.